Good morning. I hope it's okay that I preach from here. Um, I don't like to be far away lifted up. If you've ever been to Europe and you've seen a lot of the old Christian churches or Catholic churches, what you will discover is that um, when you walk into the place, you can see there's an exalted lectern in the middle of the building. Can kinda, it turns completely 360 degrees. And so typically when, when the priest, back in those days, was going up to speak, he would walk up this long stairwell to the top of this thing to speak. And he could turn in any direction. It was all circular. And um, he'd be kind of exalted above the people. And this was designed to be this way. So this is how they would view him. He's speaking down to them. Um, But for myself, and from what I understand from the word of God, Jesus did not step into a high place to look down upon people. Can you say amen? amen? He didn't do that. He oftentimes, I know one time he got on Peter's boat and told him to push off so he could speak to the people. But the situation, according to the Bible in Luke 5, was that there were so many people on the shore, they were going to push him into the water. And he wasn't going to walk on water to speak at that particular point in time. He decided to get on the boat. So as a result, I decided to speak down here, and I hope that's okay um, as your guest. I bring you greetings on behalf of R3. Ministries, R3 stands for Redeeming, Rational, and Radical. Three R's, R3. And R3 is a think tank. It is a movement. It is a collective mindset. It's not just the name of the organization. It is how we think about everything that we do. So if we do something like a sermon, we preach, it needs to be redeeming. That means Christ-centered. If we also reason, we also believe that if you preach, it should be something that appeals to the mind and not just the emotions. That's rational, but not rationalism, because rationalism is an idol. It exalts human reason above revelation, and we don't believe in that. And lastly is radical. The word radical means to go to the roots, which means if you want to change a tree, fundamentally, you must make sure that the change goes all the way down to the roots. You can graft on a new fruit, you can graft on a plant, but you haven't fundamentally changed the fruit that it will bear forever in the future. And as a result, radical means, yes, we want to be Christ-centered, we want to be focused on Jesus, because if you lose sight of Christ, you lose sight of everything. But we also want to be rational because some people take the words of the Apostle Paul where he says, I have determined to know nothing among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Can you say amen? Amen. Now, what Paul is saying is not that he's abandoning reasoning. What he is saying is, this is the power by which I reason with people. All the way back in Isaiah, God said, come now, let us what? reason together. So as a result, God is not a God who is anti-reason, anti-rational. He created the brain. He created the mind, and he created it to be developed. And things only grow when they are tested and exercised and used. So as a result, if we don't have intellectual Christians, it's because they're not using their brain. And as I grew up in inner city Chicago reading on billboards, a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Can you say amen? Amen. So it needs to be rational. Appeal to reasoning. 
understanding. But lastly, it needs to be radical. We're not just here for show, right? We're not just here to put off the checklist. I haven't missed the Sabbath in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. I came sick. I came with the flu. I came with Ebola virus. I don't miss a Sabbath. Just so we can tell people I have come for 40 years in a row. That's not why we show up. When we come into this place, I cannot find a time in the Bible where people came in contact with Jesus and were not changed. And Jesus was with Peter three and a half years. So to wake up with Jesus, to walk with Jesus, there's an old song, right, that, you know, some old people in my church where I was baptized used to always sing. When I would come and greet them on Sabbath morning, say, good morning, sister, whatever. And she'd say, I'd be like, how are you doing, sister? She says, well, I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on Jesus. I said, okay. And she said, then I got in my car and I was walking and talking with my mind stayed on Jesus. In the same sense, when we talk about being radical, we're talking about the fact that coming into this building, these four walls is not just about special musics, nice pews, make sure the air conditioning is working or the sound system is functioning properly. All those things are a medium by which we come in contact with the Lord himself. But the problem is, like the woman who had an issue of blood, is that many people were touching Jesus in that crowd, but only one woman was healed. And that's because she came with the touch of faith. She saw something different in the humble man of Galilee. So when she touched him and Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? The disciples are looking confused. Jesus, people are bumping into you all the time. People are constantly touching you. No, no, no. This touch was different. And so I want to challenge you this Sabbath morning. Don't come into this place for casual touch. To pray this morning that, Lord, I want to come into this sanctuary, this building, to see it as exactly what we say it is. The house of God. And God is always in his house. The problem is, he doesn't always find faith. And therefore, people come in and out every Sabbath, no different. Casual touch. Sing the same hymns, casual touch. But one song can change a whole nation. Because it was so interesting, when I was in the Marine Corps, and 2001 happened, September 11th, and I got these messages on my phone and phone calls to my house and all these things, you know, Mr. You know, Corporal Braxton, it's time for you to report, blah, 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 there's a system of emergency, yada, 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 president's going to make a public declaration. So I'm like, okay, great, go to the television, watch the news, and when it was time for the nation to accept and to grieve forward. They said, we want to invite this woman to sing. And the song that they asked her to sing was Amazing Grace for the nation. Nobody was complaining and saying, I'm atheist. Why are we having this song sung? They sure weren't. They sure weren't. And for so many people, they said that song was healing for them. So as a result, I challenge you to pray. Don't make this casual touch. Don't come here for more of the same. 
average worship service. We serve a God of excellence. And God is willing to give us abundantly above all we could ever ask or think. If we come with a touch of faith, her 12-year problem was solved one touch. I don't even know how many fingers it was. It wasn't 12. And it wasn't 10. Just a touch. And all of her faith concentrated in one finger. On the hem of his garment. She didn't even touch his body. But in her mind, she says, if I just touch the hem of his garment, if I can just make it into the mother's room to hear the sermon over the speaker, the touch of faith. So pray, pray, pray with me. I don't like to come to church to meet a God who is average, who just does, oh, more of the same. No, I want to be changed. I want to be a different man when I'm done preaching. I want to go home and think about what was spoken what was shared, the mood of this room, and to feel the fact that God was here. He was telling me, Sebastian, it's time to go to the next level. Doesn't matter what you preached, doesn't matter what you studied, doesn't matter where you've been. God says, don't remember the things of before because I'm going to do a new thing. And you know what he was talking about? Egypt. Don't remember when I brought you out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Don't remember that. Why? Because I'm going to do a new thing. And so this particular Sabbath on Receive the Power, God is encouraging us. It doesn't matter how the church looks today. It doesn't matter what we have accomplished in the past. It doesn't matter where the Lord has brought us. He's saying, forget about the blessings of the past and look forward, believing that God says, I'm going to do a new thing. Take that one amen. Because we don't believe the things that we claim to believe. God will do a new thing. And he doesn't need everybody. He wants everybody, but he doesn't need everybody. He only needs a few. And I pray that we would be among those few. What do you say? Amen. Let's pray together as we get started with our message. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, you know there is no one worthy to stand at this podium to open the word of God. Only the Lamb is worthy to open the scrolls that God has hidden in ages and ages past. Father, it is impossible to exalt one verse of Scripture. How can we understand God and His thoughts, which are very deep? But we pray, Father, that like that humble woman told Jesus, Lord, just give us the crumbs from the master's table. And may our souls be nourished through the breaking of the bread of life. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us and you would speak through us. That you would teach us the significance of this theme, receive the power. And you would inspire us. Inspire us to do something we've never done before. Revive us again. And Father, may this be the beginning of the end. This is our prayer. And we trust that you will help this to be our experience. For we ask in Jesus' name that all of God's people say, Amen. Today's message I have entitled, The Purpose of Power. The Purpose of Power. Of power. 
If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. When you're there, if you can say amen. Acts chapter 1. Last night, for those of you who weren't able to make it for medical reasons, we discussed the topic, the promise of power. And we wanted to be clear exactly what Jesus was promising when he said, you shall receive power. But today we build upon that because the promise of power must have a purpose. You don't just promise things to people for no reason. So Jesus, when he says, I'm promising you power, Peter, he is also assuming there is a purpose by which he will give such power. But I want to build up to this. For some of us, we probably don't study this passage very deeply. So I want to start in verse 4 of Acts chapter 1. And the Bible says, in being assembled together with them, this is talking about Jesus, he, capital H, commanded them not to depart from where? Jerusalem. Did he ask them? No, the Bible says he commanded. Yes or no? So he commanded. This is not a suggestion, right? That means the issue here is not reasoning, it's obedience or disobedience. When Jesus commands, it is not a suggestion. It is not up for discussion. It is not up for theological committees. Can you say amen? He says he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but, that's a contrasting conjunction, to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me, for John truly baptized with water. But you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The Bible says in verse 4 that Jesus was assembled somewhere with his disciples. They were together. And the Bible says, first of all, that they were commanded to wait. Perhaps this is a little bit divergent from our previous understanding. We conclude the Gospel of Matthew by saying, There is the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and preach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all things, whatsoever things I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. But there's nothing in Matthew's Gospel that says wait. Then you go to John, and John says, you know, As the Father has sent me, so send I you. Nothing in there that says wait. Mark says, go ye therefore and preach the gospel to every creature under heaven. But there's nothing in there that says wait. But according to the gospel doctor, Luke, when Jesus was about to leave this earth, 
He did not give a command to go. He gave a command to wait. He says Christian mission must be initiated by God. It is not to come from us walking in the sparks of our own kindling. It is not to come from emotionalism or a series of CNN articles or because there were tornadoes that hit our neighborhood. That is not the precipitation for mission. He says, Peter, if you want to preach the gospel, if you want to bring the gospel to this neighborhood, to this city, to this community, to this country, to this world, you must start by waiting. And if you don't wait, you will be disobeying. It is a command to wait. So when we talk about the theme, receive power, we're also dealing with an issue of timing. Because he says, listen, don't depart from Jerusalem. I'm commanding you to wait in Jerusalem. But the question is, what are they waiting for? The Bible says, if you look with me in verse 4, but to wait for the promise of the Father. You know, there is something amiss often in Christianity when people are waiting for things that God never promised them. There's a lot of people waiting for spouses, but God never promised you a husband or a wife. There's a lot of people waiting for that lottery break because they're looking for a lot of money, but God never promised you a lot of money. Some people are waiting for their, for their bodies to fill out and to become physically mature, so now everyone will think she's pretty, or now everyone will think he's handsome and athletic, but God never promised you that. Some of us are waiting for new church elders or a new pastor or a new building, but God never promised you that. Waiting for things that God never promised leaves us waiting for a long time. Because Jesus said, wait for the promise, it will come not many days from now. In other words, when you wait for things that God has promised, you don't have to wait too long. When you sit down and it says, wait on the Lord, I say, in Psalms 27, you don't have to wait too long. When it comes down and says, you know, the Lord says, I want you to wait. And those who wait upon the Lord, they shall renew their strength, not many days from now. The ones who wait on the Lord. So as a result, this command to wait, Jesus saw as the foundation of every mission. But let me pause here because one Christian writer puts it like this. It was from the secret place of prayer that the power came to shake the world through the Reformation. You see, waiting is the reason why. The man who was by the gate beautiful was standing up and walking and leaping and praising God because they waited. The reason why 3,000 souls were baptized on the day of Pentecost was because they waited on the Lord. The reason why God was adding to the church daily was because they waited on the Lord. The reason why the church was growing so exponentially that Cornelius got the Holy Spirit before he was even baptized. Because they waited on the Lord. The reason why Paul could shake off a serpent when it bit him was because they waited on the Lord. The reason why Corinth and Laodicea and Colossae and Thessalonica and Berea and Ephesus all were planted churches in major Roman cities was because they waited on the Lord. The command to wait 
Jesus says, from the secret place of prayer. I'm commanding you, Jesus says, to wait in Jerusalem. And it is important for us to know that the disciples were not from Jerusalem. That the disciples are from Galilee. Jerusalem is in Judea. The Bible says Philip is of Bethsaida. It tells us in Mark chapter 1 that Peter's house is in Capernaum, which is in Galilee. So we often use this text and say, yep, the mission has to start at home. But that's not what he's saying. Peter wasn't from Jerusalem. He tells them to not depart from Jerusalem. In other words, Peter, don't even go home. Was that a command? Yes or no? Yes, it was. Philip, don't even go home. What? Stay in Jerusalem until you receive the promise of the Father. What kind of witness you think you're going to be at home and you ain't have received power? What kind of witness you think you're going to be in Galilee, you haven't received power? So as a result of this, why would Jesus tell them to wait in Jerusalem? Because this is a hard place to wait for the promise of the Father. Because on the soil of Jerusalem is the blood of Jesus that was spilt by the Jews in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem is the blood and the bowels of Judas because he hung himself, because he betrayed the Lord in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem is the great coalition of priests that have no interest in proclaiming Christ as the Messiah in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem is where Peter denied his Lord in Jerusalem. I want you to wait, Peter, where you failed. I want you to wait where it's not comfortable. I want you to wait where you kind of think in an upper room. You think it's a mistake that it was an upper room? It wasn't a mistake. That was intentional. Because they just killed your master. You think they ain't coming for you? You keep propagating the same things? You better wait. And so, he says, don't depart from Jerusalem. I want you to wait in a place that is not comfortable. I want you to wait in a place that seems completely contrary, almost the antithesis of what you're trying to propagate. That's where I want you to wait. In Jerusalem. For the promise of the Father, he says, which you heard from me. And what exactly is the promise? In verse 5, the Bible says, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with what? The Holy Spirit. What does he mean, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit? It's very interesting. Go to John chapter 14. Go to John chapter 14. And Jesus is here in the shadow of of the cross. He is about to die. And in this dialogue before the cross, Jesus begins to have a conversation with his disciples. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 15. The Bible says, If you love me, keep my what? Commandments. And, and, I will pray. Now let's pause, right? He says, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you. Who is you? The ones he just said, if you love me, keep my commandments. In other words, when Christ says, I'm praying that the Father sends you. This is what he says. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another 
helper, that he may abide with you forever. Verse 17, the spirit of truth. The only people that he gives the Holy Spirit to are those who keep his commandments. Those who love him and keep his commandments. Because if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will pray. And is a coordinating conjunction. Continuing thought. This is connected. It's not just random. If you love me, keep my commandments. He didn't just throw that out there like it was just a word of wisdom. He's reasoning with them. Now, Peter, if you love me, keep my commandments. And eventually there will come a command to wait. But before this, he says, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. Verse 17, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot what? Woo! If the world can't receive the Holy Spirit, they cannot receive what? Power. Is that not what your Bible just said? So if you are worldly, let me say it again. If we are worldly, we will not receive power. Because the world cannot receive him. And you will receive power after the Holy Spirit has come upon you. But we get no power if we are of the world. So as a result, every point of worldliness is countering the power of the church. So people think they can go home and watch whatever they want on television. It doesn't affect anybody. Yes, it does. It affects the power of the church. People think they can go out with whoever they want and choose, thinking it doesn't affect the church. Yes, it does. People think they can spend their money on what they want. They can go to wherever they want. They can eat whatever they want. And it doesn't affect the church. That's my business. Religion is a private matter. No, it's not. Because my Bible says the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. But you come in the church. And if you come in the church and you worldly, you cannot receive the Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter how much we preach. It doesn't matter how much we pray. Jesus says the world cannot receive him. So if I am Satan, what is the best way to neutralize the power of the church? Worldliness. Come to church, but be worldly. As we used to say back in my day in the hood, angel by day, demon by night. The wings change when the sun goes down. So as a result, the question right now in this room, before we finish this verse, are we worldly? Do we have worldly practices in our lives? Because if we're serious about having power, if we're serious about finishing this work, if we're serious about going forward in the gospel, brothers and sisters, we must make sure we are not of the world. Because if we are of the world, the world cannot receive the spirit of truth. And you wonder why people fighting the truth in the church? Worldly. You wonder why people are unkind at potluck? Worldly. Can't receive the Holy Spirit. How can you have the fruit of the Spirit? You ain't got the Spirit. You understand what I'm talking about? How can you manifest love, joy, peace, kind? You know why people don't want to sing the hymns? No joy, no Spirit. Why can't you receive the Spirit? Worldliness. Worldliness is killing the song services of Seventh-day Adventist churches. 
And people tell them, I'm going to go to this church because their music is more lively. The problem is not the music. The problem ain't the hymnal. Can you say amen? amen? That's not the problem. The problem is the home. Worldliness in the home. So as a result, we want to blame the church. We want to blame the pastor. The sermons are boring. Ain't got nothing to do with the pastor. There's churches with no pastor. Baptizing people. Or there's pastors with 50 churches. You think he's going to be there every Sabbath? Someone else got to preach. And, I mean, you come to churches in America, it is your worst nightmare for the elder to have to preach. People are like, oh, Lord, this man. He about to just read Ministry of Healing for his sermon. When is the pastor coming back? You're laughing because you know I'm telling the truth. Oh, who's pre- oh, brother, deacon such and such. Have mercy, Lord. We might have to go over to another church this Sabbath. It's what we do. It is what we do. And as a result of that, we think the problem is the speaker, the preacher, the pastor, the whatever. That is not the problem, brothers and sisters. What we need to come face to face with is we need people in the church who can receive the spirit of truth. And in order for them to receive it, they must not be worldly. We can't come here and complain that the church has no power when we're the ones neutralizing the power. By what we're watching. By how we're behaving. Oh yeah, my job, that's my business. No, cursing people out at your job is neutralizing the power of the church. Going off on people with road rage, neutralizing the power of the church. Because that's worldly. Cannot receive the Holy Spirit. And as a result, we're like, man, what's wrong with that person's kids? What's wrong with his wife? What's wrong with her husband? Worldliness. The world cannot receive the Holy Spirit. Is that clear from the Bible, yes or no? So if we are worldly, we know where we are. We ain't got nobody to blame but the person in the mirror. And ask myself the question, and you ask yourself the question this morning, am I worldly? Do I have worldly things in my life? Listen, brothers and sisters, when Jesus says these things, the promises are beautiful. The results are amazing. But the conditions are clear. And when it comes down to it, let's be real. When we talk about receive the power, get the Holy Spirit, many of us are like the rich young ruler. We go away sorrowful because we got great possessions. Can't get rid of my cable. Can't stop watching Grey's Anatomy. That's my show. But ain't having family worship. We got time for Flappy Bird on our phones. Some people know what I'm talking about. I do youth ministry. Oh, man, I'm trying to get to the next level. I ain't never seen nobody say, I'm trying to get to the next level spiritually. For hours and hours and hours into the middle of the night, praying, studying the Bible. I want to get to the next level of Bible knowledge. As a result, no power. No power. So God is calling us this morning to make sure we have decided which side of the line we are on. And guess what? Worldliness, it don't care if you're black, 
If you're white, if you're blue, if you're purple, it doesn't matter. It's not a race issue. Oh, every time I go to the black church, it's very energetic. It ain't got nothing to do with color. Every time I go to the Korean church, every time I go, it's not nothing to do with race. Worldly is worldly is worldly. And the world cannot receive the spirit of truth. But let's finish the text. He says, because it neither sees him nor knows him. I'm in verse 17. But you know him. For he dwells, what? With you. I want you to note the prepositional change in this sentence. The Bible says, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be what? In you. Did you notice the prepositional change? I hope we know what a preposition is. In other words, Jesus is saying this. After Pentecost, there are two kinds of Christians in the church. People who the Holy Spirit is with and people who the Holy Spirit is in. This morning, there's only two kinds of Christians. People who the Holy Spirit is with and people who the Holy Spirit is in. Whenever we pray for someone, we always say, Lord, be with this person. Lord, be with my wife. Be with my husband. Be with my son. But because of our dearth of study on the Spirit of God, we need to change our prayers and wake up in the morning and say, Lord, be in my son. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Because he's talking about Peter. So get this. Peter walking on water, the Holy Spirit was with him, not in him. Peter casting out devils, the Holy Spirit was with him, not in him. Peter healing the sick, the Holy Spirit was with him, not in him. When would the time come where the Holy Spirit would be in him? We know what he's talking about. He's pointing towards Pentecost. He's pointing towards Acts chapter 1, not many days from now. The Father's promise is not for the Spirit to be with us. The Father's promise is for the Holy Spirit to be in us. So as a result of this, you say, what is the difference between Peter and Pilate's judgment hall, sitting before high priests and people warming themselves at the fire, and he denies the Lord? And then afterwards, same high priest, same individuals, and Peter says, we ought to obey God rather than man. Whether it's good to obey God or not, you judge. But as for us, right, almost like Joshua, as for me and my house, we're going to keep preaching the gospel. What happened to Peter? The Holy Spirit changed places. He went from outside Peter to inside Peter. And that doesn't mean Peter was perfect. Because we know in Galatians, Paul rebuked him for playing the fence with the Gentiles. So Holy Spirit in us does not mean immediate perfection. But what it does mean is what Peter had experienced with Christ For three and a half years, what he saw on that cross, it came home to his heart. When the Holy Spirit came in, Jesus says, this matter, let me show it to you in the Bible. Go to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. We're not going to be here much longer. Just hang on. 
John chapter 16, verse 13. Are you there? Amen. The Bible says this. However, when he, the spirit of truth, we know that's the same one we read in John 14, 16 and 17. When the spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into what? All truth. So we understand worldliness affects people's understanding of the truth. Those are the people fighting the doctrines and the standards. Can't be guided into all truth. But let's keep reading. He says, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. Verse 14, he will glorify who? Me. For he will take of what is what? Mine and declare it to you. So in other words, Christ says when the Holy Spirit comes, he's not uplifting himself. So when the Holy Spirit goes from being with us to being in us, he glorifies Jesus in us. He leads us to a life to say, I'm going to take what was Jesus's and I'm going to reveal it unto you. So as a result, here's Peter. He saw the cross. He saw Jesus dying. And it wasn't Peter. It was a thief on the cross that says, remember me, Lord wasn't Peter. Peter said, I never knew you. So as a result, what he saw on that cross, when he witnessed the resurrection, what he saw in three and a half years of ministry, Jesus' teaching style, Jesus' parables, Jesus' lessons, Jesus' instruction, the Holy Spirit came home to his heart. And when the Holy Spirit came upon this man, when he preached on Pentecost, he was preaching with a different power because he understood it in his heart now. Peter's like, it's not just outside. It's not just in my notebook. It's not just in my iPhone, in my iPages documents. It is in me now. Peter didn't need notes on Pentecost. Peter, you know you're preaching tomorrow. 3,000 are coming. No, the brother left the house and went outside and started preaching. And some of us are like, yeah, man, I mean, it takes me hours and hours to prepare sermons. I'm not knocking preparation for sermons. What I'm knocking is, if you understand the gospel, you understand the gospel. I don't need some little oratorical discourse, way to structure it. Peter just said, look, I'm going to tell you what you're looking at right now. You see what these men are doing, what you see happening? This is according to the prophet Joel. So as a result... The Holy Spirit being in Peter. This was the difference between a man who was a coward and a man who had courage. This is the difference between a man who would not even stand up to a little girl to say that he knew the Lord. To a man who when he was in prison about to be executed went to sleep. Knocked out in chains. With 16 soldiers around him. Peter was asleep. The Bible says the angel smote him. You understand when you got to smote somebody to wake them up the brother was deep in sleep. Not worried. The Bible says the angel smote him. Wake up, Peter. Time to get out. Pa, get up. He was knocked out because he wasn't over in the corner shaking. Lord, I'm going to die tomorrow. What are we going to do, Jesus? How are you going to get me out of this? 16 Roman soldiers, four gates to get out of the place. The brother was knocked out sleep. And we wonder why we are worrying about some bills, some final exams. Ain't got the spirit. Because when it was in him, Peter was asleep. When they captured him the first time, Peter wasn't worried. He sat in there with John. They were just talking, having a prayer session. The angel said, hey, go. 
preached right there in Solomon's portico. Hey, you know we were just arrested there, right? <laughs> Peter didn't ask. He said, all right, sounds good. <laughs> Back to preaching the gospel. But let us go to a town. Let us go to a place. He said, no, you know what? They made trouble for us when the Norman church went out and did outreach there. Why are we afraid? Why are we afraid? What did we expect was going to happen? You think the devil's going to pat you on the back and wish you well? Oh, yeah, go ahead, do outreach, no problem. The devil is not our friend. When you are friends with Jesus, you are an enemy to the devil. So as a result, if we're obeying him, there is no way the devil is going to let you take an inch, let alone a foot. Let alone a drive around the corner, he ain't going to make it. Your car going to break down before you even get out the parking lot. Listen, cars never broke down more than when I was call portering. People gave me their car. They said, man, Sebastian, we had this car for 100,000 miles, not one issue. Everything's updated on time, oil change, everything. As soon as I get in that car, two days later. <laughs> what? Call these people up like, I thought y'all said the car was fine. I don't, I'm surprised. Even when we got here to Oklahoma, one of the missionaries came in. We were finishing our week of prayer and more. He got in the van, gave him the keys, and Clive knows I'm telling the truth. We drove this car for two weeks, no problems. He gets in the car, starts driving back to the missionary residence, and literally the gas pedal is stuck to the floor. 140 miles per hour. He said in order to stop the car, he had to put the parking brake, he put it in park, to stop the car. So the mechanic looked at it and he said, you know what? The problem was there was a, the fuse where the fuel is coming from the gas pedal that controls this. He says it was completely eroded. He says the problem is in vehicles that never happens. Your car could go 300,000 miles. You'll never replace that part. There's nothing touching it. There's nothing that will burn it. There's nothing that will cut it. But he said the thing just looked like some like chipmunk with fire just burned and ate this thing up. And you know who that was, the devil, and nothing but a chipmunk with fire. That's all it is. It's all right. So as a result of this, you and I talk about the fact of the Holy Spirit being in someone and being with them. Jesus told Peter, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Nathaniel, he said, listen, you will receive power. And this power will come when the Holy Spirit has not just come upon you, but when the Holy Spirit is in you. When he's in us. Which one are we this morning? Is the Holy Spirit with us or is the Holy Spirit in us? He ain't going to force himself. He ain't going to wrestle no one down in here. Let me in. Holy Spirit won't do that. The Bible says he comes down like a dove. And you can't get more gentle than a dove. Comes down upon those who are praying for him. Let me get back to finish off our message this morning. The Bible says, go back to Acts chapter 1. This is where we're going to finish today. Ten more minutes, we'll be done. Promise. I don't want to take too much of your time. Acts chapter 1. 
Jesus told the disciples in verse 8 that we read earlier, don't worry about when God will restore the kingdom to Israel. That's not for you to know. And this is another lesson we need to get over with. We always want to ask God to know things that God says is not for you to know. And the things that God has revealed unto us to know, we're not concerned about those things. You ever wonder why people ask questions about stuff that's not in the Bible? Did Jesus brush his teeth? Why is that even relevant? So when, when Mary had Jesus, did, he, did she change God's diaper? Is that what you're trying to tell me? Jesus soiled his diaper. Was he the perfect baby? I'm like, this is the most ridiculous. It is not for you to know. But on top of that, right, let's get more closer home to heart. Lord, is this the person for me? I want to know, is this, her, is this her or is it her? Or is it him or is it him? And we're coming, Jesus, will, will you at this time? And the Lord's like, listen, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know. But here's something for you to know. You shall receive power. We're not interested. We're not interested. So as a result, the text says, you shall receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be what? Witnesses. But notice, he doesn't just say you're going to be a witness. There is an identity change. We're talking about the purpose of power. There is a fundamental identity change to a person upon whom the Holy Spirit comes and power is given. You are not just yourself, whatever your name is, you are a witness. And therefore, we said last night, we need power to be witnesses. We're not talking about witnessing. We're talking about witnesses, the person, the individual, your identity, who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a doctor. It doesn't matter if you're a dentist. It doesn't matter if you're a student. It doesn't matter if you're retired. You are a witness. At least we're supposed to be. But notice, he gives us the location. Jesus wants to let us know where we shall be witnesses. He says in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the what? Of the world. This is where I have to pause for a second. God, listen to what I'm about to say. God has always been global in his mission. When he called Noah, he was going to destroy how much of the earth? All of it. And the ark saved less people than it could hold. When he came to Abraham and he called him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, he said, Abraham, I'm going to bless your seed and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. His mission was global. When he took them to Mount Sinai in Exodus 19, he said, you know what? You're going to be a kingdom of priests unto me. When you come to Isaiah, he says, arise and shine for your light is come. 
and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. And he says, kings shall come to you. When you go to Zechariah, he says, listen, there will come a day that in the mountain of the Lord, eight men shall take the hold of the skirt of him that is a Jew and say, let us come with you because we know God is with you. Then he comes to the New Testament, he says to Peter, James, and John, he says, you are the light of the world. You are the salt of the earth. Then he says at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, when this Gospel of the Kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness, then the end shall come. Jesus' focus has always been global. Now I want to share something with you as I bring this to a close about the purpose of power. Did you know that the number one issue plaguing our generation is the issue of meaning, of purpose? There was a book that I read some years ago. It was by a woman named Lynn Lancaster and a gentleman named David Stillman. It was about the millennials. And they said, this generation is very interesting. The book was entitled, The M Factor. And this is what they said. They said, in different generations, every generation has a different purpose. Listen to what I'm about to tell you. This is what they said. They said, people who were born before 1946, these people, they had a purpose. They were called the traditionalists. And the traditionalists, they said, their goal and the purpose of their generation was to have a better future for those that they love. So they said, I'm going to work hard in a factory. I'm going to be a miner. I'm going to go to World War II, World War I, whatever it is, and I'm going to work and save money so you can go to school. So you can go and live a better life than your mom and your dad lived. Then the next generation, they called them the baby boomers. We know them. 1965 to 1981, somewhere around there. I'm sorry, 1946 to 1964. This is the most educated generation of them all. And their purpose, the way that they found meaning in life, was to get into meaningful roles in society. And in those meaningful roles, create change in society. Become the superintendent of schools to change the school. Become a congressman. Become a lawyer. Establish a big firm. Establish the best research agency. Establish the best air conditioning installation company. Get into positions of power. This is the baby boomers. Those are my parents. But then you have Generation X. 1965 to 1981. And they said this generation, because their parents were working so hard to help them to get somewhere, this generation said, I need to find meaning in life beyond my job. As a result, this generation said, I'm going to turn to my hobbies, to extreme sports, to family vacations, to major travel. This is when airlines started blowing up. And Generation X says, look, I want to travel. I want to go everywhere. I want to know what it's like to sit in first class. This is their mindset. And they said this is how they find purpose. And then, from 1982 to 2000, they said, then we come upon the millennials. And the millennials, 
is the only generation of them all that has no purpose. Listen to what I'm saying. They said millennials, their struggle is to find meaning. This is their desire. They want meaningful work. Don't tell me to come to church as a millennial and then say, hey, can you do cradle roll? That's not meaningful. Don't tell me to come in, can you do scripture reading? Five verses. Thank you, and sit down. And you wonder why a person who is 21 is not invested in the church. But you know what a 21-year-old does? They go to class, and their calculus teacher says, you need to solve all these problems by tomorrow. Thank you, have a good night. But, but Dr. Such and Such, this is in my only class. That doesn't matter to me. As far as I'm concerned, this is your only class. So my professor told me. Then you go to your next class. She's like, oh, you need to read Beowulf and write a paper by Monday. Like, what? Oh, on top of that, also begin reading Julius Caesar. Then you go to your next class, and they're like, well, as a history class, da -da. and then your communications class, yeah, you need to have your speech ready. Proper research, this is the doc, MLA style. Who is challenging them? And then when I was doing ministry in Boston at Harvard and MIT and all these top schools, do you know what they tell their students at their graduation? You come to church, the church says, hey, God bless you. We're so happy you graduated, you finished, you made it. Be encouraged. God has made it through. It's like you just survived, right? I mean, that's how we describe it. They said one, you know, one Baptist preacher was speaking at a commencement. And he says, some of you graduated magna cum laude. Some of you graduated summa cum laude. Some of you graduated praise the Lord. <laughs> That's the way we do it. But when you go to Harvard's graduation and MIT, they gather them all there in Harvard Square outside. They have some major person, some Supreme Court justice or something. Then as he's talking there, and I was there for three graduations, they come out and the speaker, every single one, every single year, they say, listen, you are the generation and you are the students from Harvard University that will find the cure for AIDS. You who are going on to law school, you will figure out how to create laws to, my, my, to uh, minimize crime. You who are social workers will realize how to fundamentally change the home. It all rests upon your shoulders. You must graduate from this institution not to be average, but to change the world. So that when you leave, your footprint in the sand will remain. Because you do not tread in sand, you tread in concrete. And the steps you make will always be there for everyone to see. Because you are those people that will change the world. So as a result, when Barack Obama graduates from such an institution, it wasn't out of his mind to become the president because he was told from when he left, you will be the person. But when we bring young people into the church, oh yeah, we need young people to help with potluck, to set up the tables. You will be the people that will do cradle roll. <laughs> Am I telling the truth? But when's the last time we told our young people, you are the next generation of preachers? You will be the ones to finish the work. You will be the ones that help us to see Jesus come. 
You will be the one that Peter will ask on the sea of glass. What was it like in the literal last hours of earth's history? What was it like to see Jesus' face crack the sky? You will be that generation. So when Christ looked at Peter and he says, you shall receive power. What was the purpose of power? He says to take it to the uttermost parts of the earth. And in every generation, in every major movement, this purpose of power has always precipitated the greatest changes. When you look at communism, whenever they would speak, they would tell their young people, listen, there is a global war going on in this world. It is over the hearts and the minds of men, and it will be decided in this generation. And when Karl Marx would be finished speaking, he would say, you have a world to win. And he would send them off. How many times do we leave the church like that? We sing our, we have this hope. And then someone gets up and says, you have a world to win. Reminding them the purpose of why we do what we do. When you go to civil rights, there is nothing more momentous than the I have a dream speech. That speech in and of itself that was watched by President John F. Kennedy himself from the Oval Office. And as he began to say these words, I have a dream. And the funny thing is, his friend told him, leave out the dream part. It's kind of corny. That's what he told MLK. Leave off, don't say I have a dream. That's kind of corny, you know. I don't think that's going to go over well. And he edited it out of his notes. But when he started speaking and he saw the people and it started coming home to his heart, he's like, listen, you know what? I couldn't hold back. Because when he looked up, he wasn't looking at his notes. Watch the video. I watch it every New Year's Day. Watch the video. He stops looking down at his notes and he says, I have a dream today. I'm not going to keep it to myself anymore. I don't care if it sounds corny. I don't care if some people think it's whack. And because of it, it is historic. Because he looked out at black, white, male, female, gave them a purpose and said, we're going to be the generation to change segregation. Nazi Germany? I don't even need to say more. Hitler made them believe there will be a 1,000-year Reich on the earth. And Germany will be prominent among the nations. We will be the head and not the tail. That's what he told them. And they started taking over Europe. It took the whole world to fight them. After 50 million people died. So I ask you this question. We can talk about receive the power, but what is the purpose of power? Jesus understands, brothers and sisters, that to reach the city of Norman, to reach the conference of Oklahoma, to reach this state, to reach this country, to reach this world, it's going to take more than what we currently possess. Can you say amen? amen. It's going to take more than what our schedule has been hitherto. We can't continue as we are expecting different results. We can't be praying as we are and expect different results. That is the definition of insanity, to do the same thing expecting different results. 
If you let the ball go out of your hand, it will fall to the ground every time. Nope, I'm going to keep doing it till it floats. Go ahead. Mind yourself. But eventually, there comes a time where people wake up. There comes a time when people wake up and realize we're not going to continue church like this. We have a purpose. We have a definite aim. And so I ask you, as I conclude this message, the words that I read many years ago, young person, older person, doesn't matter. What is the aim of your life? What is the aim of your life? I'm not talking about your 10-year plan. I'm not talking about your five-year plan. What is the aim of your life? Because as a result, people say, well, you know, I'm going to be a mother. What happens when your kids grow up and they're not home? Now what's your aim? Can't be your kids. So what is the aim of your life? Well, once I become a PhD, once I get my medical degree, now you graduated, you got your medical degree, you're a doctor, now what's the aim of your life? When we choose a purpose in life, it must be big enough for our whole life. It must be so large, so broad, so auspicious, so bold, so audacious of a purpose that lays before us that we say, look, either I will finish, either I will do this, or I will die trying. It has to be big enough to encompass my whole life. Because success in any line demands a definite aim. And I wonder, what is the aim of this church? What is the aim? And how do you know that Norman Church is a successful church? Are we hitting the mark or are we not hitting the mark? How do you know that Oasis is a successful organization? What is the aim? Is it hitting the mark? Is it not hitting the mark? We must have a definite aim. We must have a purpose for power. Otherwise, this is a waste of time. Receive the power. To do what? Because power means ability to do. So what are you trying to do? If we do not agree on this, if we do not decide on this, all of this is a waste of time. It is vain. Jesus didn't come and die for people to sit in buildings in air conditioning. That's not why he died. That's not why he came. That's not why he humbled himself. The Lord of glory did not go through that so we can be comfortable in a church. Well, I found my salvation. I'm good. I'm going to come and worship and get my praise on every week. It's not why the Lord died. In the words of a good friend of mine, if you're not a missionary, you're a mission field. If you're not reaching out to souls, you need to be reached. If you're not converting sinners, you need to be converted. It's that simple. No one had to tell Peter and urge him on. Peter, you can do this. Peter wasn't like, Lord, when are we going to get training? When are we going to learn? I don't even know what to do. What if the church is not ready? We need to get in harmony. We need to be in unity. None of that happened. 
You didn't have to tell Peter to go out on Pentecost. He didn't care how many numbers. He didn't care who they were, what country they were from. It was in his heart. It was in his heart. No fear. What is the aim of your life? I finish my quote. Such an aim has been set before the youth of our day. The heaven-appointed purpose of taking the gospel to all the world in this generation is the most noble aim that can appeal to any human being. That's a quotation. I didn't make those words up. From the book Education, Life, Work. Those are the first two, three sentences. The aim has been set before us. Heaven-appointed purpose. To take the gospel to all the world in this generation. So therefore, here we are, receive the power, and the purpose of the power is to fulfill the most noble aim ever given to mortals. So we have to make an invitation. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. We need to wrap this service up. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed. I don't want people looking around. I don't want them to know who's going to respond, who's not responding. This is between you and the Holy Spirit. And if you're not going to respond to this invitation, then you need to be praying for those who need to respond to this invitation. My first invitation is for that person this morning that says, I do not have an aim for my life. I don't have a definite aim for my whole life. I have not embraced the heaven-appointed purpose to take the gospel to all the world. But this morning, I want to accept Jesus' invitation to receive this purpose, the most noble aim, the most noble purpose that can appeal to any human being. I want to live my life, whatever my calling, whatever my trade, whatever my education, to win souls for Christ. If you want to accept that invitation, I want to ask you to stand to your feet. You say, Lord, I'm willing to accept this invitation to receive this as the aim of my life. I want to invite you to stand. Say, Lord, I'm going to receive this, per the most noble aim that can appeal to any human being. No matter what you do with your schooling, no matter what you do with your job, your primary aim in life is to win souls. Your primary aim in life is to win souls. Lord, help me to win souls for Christ. My second invitation is for that person that says, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I'm struggling with worldliness. And if we are of the world, we cannot receive the spirit of truth. And there are some things I need to surrender to Jesus today. 
And you want to say, Lord, I'm ready to let it go. I'm ready to let them go. I just want to invite you to stand to your feet as well. Jesus, I'm struggling with worldliness. And because of that, I know that I cannot receive the Holy Spirit. And there's some things in my life that I need to let go. I invite you to stand. Between you and the Lord. You know what it is. You know what it is. And the world cannot receive him. He cannot receive the Holy Spirit, who is of the world. Heavenly Father, we know that all of heaven rejoices over one sinner who repents. And as a result, some of us have stood to say there are things we need to surrender in our lives, Lord. We have worldly things. And it is neutralizing the power of the church. So as a result, Father, we pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit into our lives and give us power to resist evil. To turn away from the things of this world. And to know that as much as we indulge in these things, we are neutralizing all the power of the gospel. Have mercy on us, Lord. We knew it in our hearts, but the conviction has revived again. And now we want to let it go. Father, for those of us who have stood to receive this aim in our lives, this definite aim, this most noble aim, to win souls, no matter our calling, no matter our trade, no matter our profession. We want soul winning to be our priority. And that's why we have stood. We thank you, Lord, for giving us audience with you. And we offer this prayer from our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.